0: Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast,
1: where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature.
0: Coming to you from the high Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your
1: hosts, A.C. Stobble
0: and Isaac Hill.
1: Episode 53 Old English Plant Lore with Stephen Pollington. Stephen is an author and historian who specializes in Anglo Saxon England and the Old English language. He's written over 10 books on the subjects. And his book, Leechcraft, Early English Charms, Plant Lore, and Healing, is the focus of our chat today. We learn a lot about some of the difficulties of translating Old English works. We learn about some of the main healing modalities and um, the types of healing, like spell healing, knife healing, and herb healing that we see in this time period late 9th or 10th century England. Stephen tells us a little bit about the different types of healers like leeches what a leech actually is and it's not what you're thinking probably and we talk about the medieval thoughts around the origins of disease and inevitably some animistic ideas are brought up Um, especially when we talk about the nine herbs charm and how folks would speak or chant directly to the plants themselves rather than to a god or some other divinity. I personally also really liked hearing about Stephen's origin story, so to say, of growing up in a place east of London that he didn't realize this as a child while he was reading Marvel comics, fascinated with Thor, but he lived in a place called Thunderlay, aka Thor's Grove. So I thought that was really cool. And this whole episode was just such a pleasure. Stephen is so funny, so poetic, and extremely knowledgeable. So we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we did recording it. And as always, be sure to like, subscribe, share. Really though, if you know someone who might be interested in the content that we're putting out there, Just message them, hit them up right now. Just tell them about the Plant Cunning podcast. You're probably right; they're probably gonna love it. So thank you. And for those of you who are on Telegram, we just created a channel today called Plant Cunning that you can come and give us a warm Telegram welcome at over there. We're just exploring that whole world. So if you're into Telegram, come say hi, show us the ways. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon page at patreon.com slash plant cunning, where we offer exclusive content and um, a community over there. So you can support us for as little as a buck an episode or even up to $20 a month. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate all of your support and hope you enjoy the show.
0: Okay, well, today we've, we'd love to welcome Stephen Paulington to the Plant Cunning Podcast. How are you today, Stephen?
2: I'm very well, thank you, and I hope you are too. Yeah, yeah. we're doing great. Yeah,
1: yeah we're sure. really super excited to talk to you. Um, so yeah, we're honored to have you and appreciate well, you. It's very good. kind of
2: you to say so.
1: Of course.
0: Well, your, your books are just really great. I have some of your books on runes. But you, you also put out this book, Leechcraft, Early English Charms and Plant Lore and Healing, yep. almost 20 years ago. But it's yeah. like such an amazing uh, reference for anybody who's interested in herbalism, Anglo-Saxon history, uh, folk magic, any of those kind of things.
2: Well, that was the point of doing it. The, um, there have been translations of some of these old English texts which are accessible, but the translations date mainly from the um, 19th century, Mm. Uh, very little um, fresh translations made in the 20th century. And it just seemed to me that it would be great to have a single, like a one-stop shop where you could just get, you know, you'd have all the um, relevant texts, the original um, in the Old English, and then facing that, the modern translation. And I think it's important to give the original text in in these cases, because, you know, fashions change, ideas change, new research comes along. And it's important that you should be able to check uh, the original against the translation to to see whether new research has uh, provided a different interpretation. But that doesn't invalidate the whole thing. It just means be careful of that one passage.
1: Yeah, I think it's really cool how you did that where you have the old text on one page and then your translation on the page right next to it and you can read them both and like see the similarities, you know, and it's, just, it's a really good style of doing yeah. it so yeah I appreciate yeah. all of this work and effort that you put in like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, honestly it's just so much it's mind boggling and uh, Yeah, really that
2: was um, three years was... in the writing that book. So yeah, three? three years.
1: Wow, years, that seems years. fast.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so once I like, get going on a subject, you know, I get the resor- research materials and then I just yeah. steam ahead and go for it. I, I don't hang around. <laughs> uh, I yeah. the same with all my books, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I really, I do think it's really important to have the um, the Old English, the original, whatever translation, the original language and the translation, because even in like Old English is the the ancestor of modern English but there are still so many different interpretations or like if you go to like old Norse like you'll have like the Voluspa had there's so many different translations that mean totally different things and you like you (laughs) people have their various um, ideas and beliefs about things and they put those into their into their translations
2: sure yeah if you certainly if you study old taking an example like the Voluspa that's such a difficult text because it's absolutely, the meanings are packed tight in those short lines. A, a line of five, six, seven words can it can be interpreted in so many different ways. Unfortunately, the old English material is not as dense as that normally. There's, yeah. It's a little bit friendlier. It's a little bit easier to get to grips with, but you do have the parallel problem that you're dealing with um, the names of plants and medicinal substances, and often the names themselves have disappeared, or if they haven't disappeared, you can't be entirely sure that the modern reference for that that name that word is the same plant as it was as referred to it um, you know, a thousand years ago. I mean, right. the names of plants have changed in a hundred years from from Victorian times into modern times. The the plants that are designated by certain names have changed so if you sort of take that back a thousand years uh it's it's very difficult to come up with um, firm identifications
0: yeah that's that's a really important point and i'd like to talk more about this and maybe even get into some specific plants a little bit later sure. yeah, uh, yeah but i guess uh to get to get started um what what brought you to anglo-saxon history and this whole subject uh like how, how did you get to, to be to be a, a published author of so many books? Like- well, i have got a lot of time on my
2: hands. <laughs> yeah. No, really. I've always been fascinated by language and by um, you know earlier forms of our language, old texts, um, medieval things or early modern things really. Um, when you start down that road, you you can you can read, I don't know. Dickens, that's a century old. You can read um, Goldsworthy and Swift; they're a bit older. You can take it back into uh, Shakespeare, which is probably where most people stop. But if you if you're still curious and you want to know what the traditions Shakespeare um, drew on and how how the language was in his day before the immense um, changes that he was part of. Um, at that point, you get it from early modern English into Middle English, which is kind of Chaucer, uh, is the the famous thing, Canterbury Tales, and so on. But there's a whole lot of other um, Middle English literature, Gawain and the Green Knight, and so on. That you know, really quite interesting stuff. Then it all kind of stops for about a hundred years in the sort of thirteenth mm, century. Um, there's not a whole lot written in English. Uh, that's for political and social reasons to do with the norman conquest but if you get beyond that you get into the t- early 12th and certainly the 11th century there's a massive old english material um the difficulty is of course this is a this language is a thousand years old so it's you're not just going to be able to pick up a book and read it straight off the page but with a little training and certainly if you have a um, say a background in if you've learned German you'll be familiar with most of the grammar grammar aspects and the, the points of uh, uh, word order and so on um, and it just goes from there so that was my take on it And I, you can go back uh, studying old English you can go back as far as the 7th century so there's English texts dating from the 7th century not many of them um, some laws that were issued in Kent, in the south of England, well, Canterbury, basically, um, in the seventh century. You can't really get any further back than that. There are runic inscriptions that are older, but they tend to be one word, two word, um, and often not really easily interpretable. Mm. But the uh, yeah, that's the that's what got me involved, um, and when, having learnt. The language and having um, developed an interest in the history that takes you into other areas, you know, the the culture of the time, the Mm. artworks of the time, the the military culture, the the, uh, medical culture, um, the writing systems, all kinds of stuff. It's amazing how so many worlds open up before you (laughs) without you even trying, really, or realising what you're getting into
1: yeah you just keep unpacking all these layers
2: yeah yeah you do and the you know it's like it it's the the old thing of um knowledge being um a bright circle of light surrounded by darkness and as the as the diameter of the light gets bigger its contact with the darkness gets greater so you <laughs> oh. realize that how much you really don't know I love and that, that. you know you, you go in with uh with the idea that you're going to crack this in an afternoon no it's just you know it's a life's work yeah
0: and one work just leads to another Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely so what what really like is it the mystery that drew you in or like the sense of roots uh like what what do you think really brought you um to to this
2: it's it's interesting isn't it um i think a lot of separate strands kind of converged in the Anglo-Saxon period for me. I've always been very interested in mythology, um, yeah. started out, you know, I, I will shamefacedly admit that it was uh, Marvel Comics Thor <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that was one of the, uh, the, the strands that I started uh, unraveling because I, I really loved those uh, Avengers comics when I was a yeah. child
1: cool um
2: so that was one thing and then I grew up in Essex which is to the east of London and for a long time was considered a um a dark and gloomy place uh we had kind of witch trials and all that kind of stuff back in the uh in the 1700s it was uh um quite a um a rural and agricultural uh kind of setting um the the reason I'm telling you this is that the the village I grew up in is called Thundersley, which didn't mean anything to me as a child, but it turns out that this is Thunreslech. This is the, the lech, the, um, the clearing, the kind of woodland grove belonging to the god Thunor, which is the English form of the god that the Norsemen called Thor. So all that time I was living in Thor's Grove and oh I didn't gosh. know it. <laughs> That's
1: How so cool violent. is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Whoa,
1: I kind of get the chills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And it's a weird, weird kind of place. It, the actual where the church is sited is on the very edge of a kind of escarpment, um, uh, a ridge that sits running from the estuary of the River Thames, running northwards through the county. Um, But it's on this one little hill that sits in sort of splendid isolation. And uh, I was baptised in the church there. um, It was, for a very long time, uh, the tiniest church you will ever see. Most people's (laughs) living rooms are bigger than this church. They expanded it back in the 1950s. But, yeah, um, it used to be an absolutely tiny little church and you can't help thinking that wow this must this must sit on the footprint of something that's been there not just centuries but possibly you know thousands of years there may have been uh, a sacred site there and there there was a huge oak tree just outside the um, porch of the church which, oh. which was one of those really old trees that um, had been hollowed out because it, it, it you know, they, they kind of die and the, the centre rots. But the, there's enough sapwood still taking the, uh, the um, nutrients from the ground up to the leaves um, that the thing kind of, it, it remains alive, but, but a hollow kind of column. I used to sit shelter from the rain in there when when I was a child. It was a kind of mm. a spooky thing, and you think, wow, the, the association here with Thunar, the the thunder god, and this uh, this huge oak tree that that must have been there hundreds of years, several hundreds of years. Um, yeah, it's all just kind of stuff that sets your imagination crackling. Yeah. 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 Well,
0: it's definitely true that most of the um, churches were built on the old holy places. Is that that's right?
2: Absolutely right. Yeah. The English, the Anglo-Saxons, when they came to that part of the world, were building on foundations that had already been um, places of, of supernatural import, if you like, for well, certainly for centuries and probably for millennia. I mean, you could run it back through beyond the Roman period into the Iron Age, but potentially, why not the Bronze Age? Why not the Neolithic period come to that? yeah. Um, Essex is, the, the geology of Essex doesn't huge provide huge boulders or um, big stones that you can use for building. It's mainly cobbles, um, flints, and the, the geology is clay. So you haven't got anything like Stonehenge to deal with. You haven't got huge stones <laughs> like that. But clearly that this was a site that was important and uh i don't know that any archaeological digs have ever been done there um it's one of the things that you know one day somebody's going to find something important i'm sure
0: yeah well i was just reading the barbarian conversion by richard fletcher Uh and at the end of it he talks about a church that um he would visit down from his his home and there's uh, a stream that goes under the ground and then pops back up a few miles oh, wow. below it, And there's the church right there. And it, you know, that would that had been a, a sacred site long before you know, the church was there. You know, yeah, probably, sure. probably forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Luminous quality mm. to it. Exactly. Yeah. And these these places they just inspire awe, don't they? They just inspire yeah. um a sense of being in in connection with uh, you know, Supernatural is such an overused word, but but something other, something beyond man and his his limited existence. Yeah. It, it's really impressive. Yeah.
1: Well, it makes perfect sense to me you growing up in such a you know mystical place that you found this connection. Um
0: it's also interesting. Like I I, I feel like uh I don't really watch movies much. uh, and i've not watched any of the marvel movies but they're a big thing apparently and like everyone is like all into thor now yeah marvel (laughs) movies so i I feel like a lot of people are are getting getting into into that through through that you know would you call that a mythology like a a, a contemporary mythology do you think in a thousand years people will be be uh looking at those comic books
2: and well you can't help thinking that there's something there can you because the the um (laughs) I know the presentation is a little kind of cheesy, maybe in these. Well, it's immensely impressive, but we're impressed by the um, the skill and artistry of the people who put it together, rather than by the figures themselves. But, Mm. but yeah, this still taps into something, doesn't it? Some some kind of basic um, wish to be to feel valued and protected by an outside power that's you know of immense uh, capability which is yeah. what the avengers is all about you know it's <laughs> if i understand it yeah mm-hmm.
1: well um i'd love to maybe start talking about your work uh leechcraft uh-huh. and um i'm wondering if first we can kind of define the period um like what time period the the three works that you basically trap off of were from like where are we in the world set and setting
2: in the time right well that's slightly different for each of the um the the principal manuscripts that i was working from but the bulk of them it has to be said are works that are translated into old english probably sometime in the i guess late ninth or 10th century so this is um, around the time that England came into being, really. You can't talk much about England as a political unity before 937, the Battle of Brunnenburg, when the power of the Scandinavians was broken by King Adelstan. So it's m- maybe his, his rule, the period of his rule, or if not, then not long after, maybe King Edgar... Um, who was an important um, developer of English social um, social functions uh, in his day, he reformed the coinage and did all kinds of other good stuff. Um, so that's when the translations into English were made. The documents that they were translated from, uh, most of them have come to England presumably via churchmen and via the uh, the interchange of uh, exchange of manuscripts and so on that took place between religious institutions um, sometime in the preceding two, maybe 300 years. I'm um, sorry to be so vague, but um, we don't have an awful lot of evidence for what happened prior to um, the mid ninth century, the 850s, eight, eight 860s. Eight um, And the reason for that is not that there were no documents made. It's that they just don't survive. Um, Very often uh, a document that had been translated and copied out was was extremely valuable. And it was recopied and recopied and recopied. But in the intervening thousand years, of course, we've had immense social changes. We've had the Norman conquest where um, a lot of Anglo-Saxon institutions were simply um, obliterated and Subsequently, we've had you know um, centuries of of wars and all kinds of other stuff going on, and subsequent to that, we've had the um, dissolution of the monasteries under King Henry VIII and then the whole Protestant thing coming in, and the yeah. um, disregard for yeah, you know, disregard for the Catholic tradition, yeah, but disregard for everything that had been recorded prior to. Uh, the Protestant Revolution. So, um, add all those things together. It's amazing that anything survived. And what we've really got here is a, a handful of um, of documents that must stand, stand in for the probably hundreds, if not even thousands, of documents that originally existed. Mm. Uh, the, the ones that I used for the for the book, um, principally. Um, the Old English Herbarium, which is a, a translation of a document probably put together in the eastern Mediterranean somewhere, possibly Byzant- uh, Byzantium. Mm. The textual history is a, it's kind of a bit vague because we know a lot of these things. We know the details of their history in the Mediterranean. But when they get when they move beyond the Mediterranean, they get copied and recopied and uh, bits added and bits you know, no longer surviving and don't therefore appear in the in the subsequent recopyings and so on. So the history of the, the text is is quite complex and the whole subject in
0: itself. It's interesting to me too, like a lot of those medieval manuscripts, like they ch- they change with every every copying. Like even like you look at like the Picatrix, like the Picatrix that we look at is the Latin <coughs> translation from the Arabic. Right, but it's it's different than the original,
2: yeah
0: <laughs> it's its own thing,
2: yeah, it's difficult to tell how many subsequent translations and recopyings there have been that produce the single document that we actually have access to mm-hmm. um, I, it's it's incredible to to think that um, the the document that we have is the original cop recopy or translation and recopying of the thing. There could be you know, 10 generations of recopying in between the form that we have today versus the original translation into Latin. Yeah. Um, and at each recopying or each retranslation, the scribes never get it quite right. You know, they don't they either. There's all kinds of errors of copying where they can't read an original letter. So they just write what they think or sometimes yeah they the uh, the documents get damaged, and the scribe finds mm-hmm. he's, there's a hole in the vellum and uh, he's he's got a uh, a word there that he can't make sense of, so he kind of fills mm-hmm. it in from what he thinks this this has happened in the the Beowulf manuscript where we can check um and you can see the kinds of errors that the scribes mm-hmm. were making
1: and do you think that's also partially why? the images of the plants are kind of creative and don't look as realistic because certain scribes were yeah, drawing these yeah. plants that they weren't really artists.
2: They often don't look anything like you've ever seen, do they growing <laughs> <Nothing>. in, in <laughs> they're, your garden? It's like and fantasy. You think, but yeah. yeah. You think, well, how did they get it so wrong? How could they not <laughs> know? Um, I have, there is an interesting idea. I, I can't recall who came up with this that what the artists were actually drawing is the dried herbs uh-huh. uh, some of these uh, more exotic uh, plants they didn't ha- they couldn't grow them here in northern europe but they could import them in a dried form and they were kind of maybe pressed flat and in, in a book or something mm-hmm. and therefore what you're seeing is the, the the completely withered and dried out form of a plant that you know um, it, it doesn't bear much relation to anything that you'll you'll ever see growing in the ground.
1: Yeah, that that's a really interesting idea and I guess it is useful for the people who are working with the dried imported plant to know exactly. what it looks like dried. So They're never
2: going to see it living, but they need yeah. to know what to look for when the when the chapman the merchant turns up. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So so most of these are translations, but there's also recordings of of oral uh, teachings or oral charm like the Laknunga has a lot of of that too. Right. Old English um, charms.
2: Well, I think the the whole of Anglo-Saxon culture, really, as we have it uh, recorded, is a mixture of of three kind of strands. Uh There's the The (laughs) Judeo-Christian stuff. Which is, uh, you know, which you would ex- imagine a a churchman, an ecclesiastic, is going to be very keen on that kind of thing. Right. Um, there's a lot of Greco-Roman stuff in there, a lot of this Eastern Mediterranean material, which is a, a separate strand um, and has its own narrative, its own uh, its own um, vector of transmission. Mm-hmm. But h- hidden amongst all those things, there's there's this whole um, sort of native Northern European stuff. You could say it's, it's Germanic uh, because the the um, language in which it's couched is a Germanic language. You know, it's old English or sometimes you old Saxon or whatever. It could even be older than that, in all honesty. It, 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 you know, the written history is not so long that we can be sure that quite where any of these ideas come from. Mm-hmm. But the... There's certainly beyond the, uh, the ideas of uh, healing with herbs, there's a, a much stronger tradition, should we say, of healing with the power of the word. And that can be the power of the, the Latin word, the Christian uh, prayer or invocation or appeal to an outside power to assist, which will be framed in a Christian narrative, but equally, there are simply appeals to the plants themselves to assist the healer. And that, that is not really consistent with Christian tradition. That's a, a very a very different idea. The Greeks and Romans aren't doing this. It doesn't seem to come from the Judeo-Christian tradition. It seems to be a native kind of northern European thing and a way of, I don't know, uh, um allowing or encouraging the pat the, the the plant itself to to release its beneficial powers
0: it sounds animist really
2: it does exactly that yeah it does the uh, and you can't help wondering is this and is this kind of a pantheism is there a, a god of the particular plant that has to be um uh, appealed to or is this actually the plant itself and a, I, there's no suggestion that there's uh, in in these particular charms, like the the nine herbs charm. It's a direct address from the speaker to the plant, with no suggestion that there's any other uh, agency involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very yeah. interesting. Yeah, nice. and it's amazing that this stuff survives. In all honesty, yeah. Because yeah. it's not really consistent with the the Christian idea of uh, of what it means to be well or to be ill.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that all is very interesting. So, I also wanted to just ask a defining question is what is a leech?
2: Ah, this is uh, an interesting one. Yeah, because um, I called the book Leechcraft because that's a direct translation of the Old English, lachecraft. craft. Um, and of course, when you hear the word leech, you immediately think of the little blood sucking, Thing that looks like a slug, right. but you know. Right. Oh, in, I'm old enough to remember the African Queen with Humphrey Bogart and these horrible black things sucking the blood out of him and so on. Um, but no, it's nothing to do with that. Sadly, I mean, it would be lovely if it were. But no. <laughs> <laughs> leech uh, is our is the modern form of the old English word lache, which is it's it's a, an odd word, a weird word, but it means a healer. A person who to whom you turn when you're in need of um, medical help—it's um, nowhere kind of defined, but it does—it uh, does—it does have that function. And lache craft is the the skill of the healer, the, the healer's particular set of accomplishments. There's also amusingly um, a lache finger, a healer's finger, mm-hmm. which is. Yeah, it makes you wonder what's this all about. Is this something prosaic, like the finger with which ointments are applied to a, to a wound? Is it that? Is it just a practical thing, or is there something special about the the hands of a healer who is able to uh, you know apply his own healing power to the uh, to the patient? I don't know. Never been explained, but it you know you can interpret it. In whichever way yeah, feels right to you.
0: Yeah. So, what? How does the the leech uh, differ? Like, is a leech a cunning folk, a cunning man, a cunning woman, or uh, a witch? Uh, like, where where uh, and we also have like monks?
2: Yeah, there are two parallel traditions really here: There's right. the, the the healing tradition within monasteries and religious houses, which are very often connected with, uh, well, specifically um, the um, Salernitan, I can never say this word, Salernitan uh, School of Healing, which is based in Salerno in Italy. It's, um, it's a sort of monastic tradition of helping people who are ill, going out into the community and, and providing providing medical services in that way. But that's a different thing entirely from what we would probably think of as folk medicine or um, lay medicine, the the kinds of healing that are done by just uh, people who've been around long enough to have met these problems before and have overcome them. You don't need any, often need any special training for this. This is just stuff that everybody knows that you, you kind of pick up just through existing in the world and, you know, you fall over, you you get stung by a nettle or whatever, and, and you know the plant that is going to uh, um, help you to overcome the, the nettle sting or, or or a wasp sting or, you know, whatever. You get a headache, you know which plants to to take the leaves and to just chew on them to release the active ingredient. Um, so there are two parallel traditions here, and the, the ecclesiastical tradition is very much focused on really the the authority of the written text whereas the the sort of folk tradition which is recorded in one set of texts which i'll mention in a moment which is slightly different which is far more um home-based based based around plants and materials that you'll find on a typical farm back in the day the the text i'm referring to is called bold's leech book it's the leech book. It's the, the book of remedies, the book of cures, book of treatments, really. And we know, it's called Bald because we know that the man who commissioned it was uh, called Bald because it, his, he has a kind of a little panel at the beginning of, uh, of one of the uh, sections that says that Bald had this book written by. And the chap who actually did the copying is uh, called Child C-I-L-D. Which is a a word for a, a youth or a young man, child. So, child. It is our word, child. Yeah, I try not to say that because, <laughs> because uh, you get straight into ideas of all oh, child labour and this poor poor uh, seven year old sat there with a quill of, and a bottle of ink. No, child was actually uh, and child is a, an honorific. Really, you get. Um, references to noblemen in the 11th century called something like Alfred Child or Wolfere Child just means uh, the younger, if you like. It's oh, like yeah, Wulfrich yeah. the elder and Wulfrich the younger. So Wulfrich um, father, I guess, and Wulfrich child, Wulfrich the, young, the youngster. Hmm. Um, yeah, and the, 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 that Leech book um, doesn't have much in it. That is derived from the Mediterranean tradition at all. It's um, it's pr- bits of it are certainly um, copies of an earlier work, which was possibly even composed um, in the ninth century in the period of King Alfred. We know that there was a, wow. a great deal of uh, interest in you know, uh, manuscript production, and and um, Alfred himself is said to have encouraged um, the the recording of those books which are most needful for men to know. And it's really largely due to him that we we have such a wealth of, uh, of material surviving from the old English period, not often in manuscripts that were made during his lifetime, but copied from those manuscripts with all the consequent errors and tidings up and so on. But they're, they're still of, of value and uh, and are useful. Hmm. Um there are actually three leech books that were ascribed to chill a kind of set of them that now sit in the uh, British Library in London um, but the interesting one is the the third one which has got all the, the northern European law the uh, um, doesn't use Latin names for plants uses um, standard old English names for plants and it's beautifully laid out the actual execution of the work is is, in, is enormously uh, accomplished. Uh, it clearly wasn't his first go at this. He'd been doing this a while. And we don't know quite um, what the context was for compiling all this medical knowledge into a, a single kind of compendium of, of traditions there. But it seems perfectly likely that this was actually the, the working manuscript of of this healer, of Bald, and that um, he thought it worth having it copied down. Maybe his son was going to follow him into practice or or there was some other reason for kind of handing this knowledge on, um, preserving it for, for subsequent generations.
1: Just to clarify, was a leech like a paid job, like a trade? Like, as you're saying, maybe Bald was passing it down to his son or protege um were these but, were, like the book used for you know common people or was it mostly for like these tradesmen of well
2: the, the likelihood is that in certainly by the 11th century um to be a lache to be a, a healer was certainly a profession and there were i think the city of truro in cornwall had three people following that trade Okay. So it was definitely something that you would get paid for. There was no Fuck. question about that. Um, what the situation was in previous centuries, debatable, really. But people of all classes and walks of life get ill. Um, even, you know, the, the humblest ploughman can you know fall off his horse and break a leg or, you know, things can happen to anybody. So there must have been a widespread tradition of of um medical knowledge uh which was disseminated just amongst the the common people and this would fall into the the what you were talking about earlier the the cunning folk kind mm. of idea which is uh, yes ordinary wise men and women living in a village or even out in the countryside more widely who had special skills in this in this area not necessarily for Formally trained, but it does, from medieval tradition at least, seem to have been something that ran in families. Mm-hmm. And that a, a wise woman or a wise man would would have learned from a um, a relative from the previous generation. Mm. Um, so it would be it would be handed down in families. And of course, it if if you were that person, if you had that special knowledge and were able to help people out in times of trouble. That would make you a pretty important person. You'd, you'd be um, uh, a valuable, valued member of society. It would give you status. Might not bring you wealth, but it would give you status and give you some kind of bearing in and standing in society generally.
1: Yeah, your community would value you and probably want to keep you around.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And a midwives, likely mm. in the same way, midwives were not necessarily specifically trained for any. Um, medical procedures, it trained medically for all this stuff. But they they helped out at birth. And um, probably the ones that ended up doing it professionally had been doing this since they were young girls. So they'd been around birth and they'd seen the things that can go wrong and they'd seen the ways in which a disaster can be averted if you act quickly and you do the right things. And that's you know that's really how folk traditions work, I guess. Yeah
0: so we have uh bald's third leech book and that is um and you 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 don't have the first and the second in here
2: um but... i didn't put them in leechcraft um the reason for that is the I minutes mean, the book is pretty hefty already yeah uh, so it's it's <laughs> it's <a>, it's <laughs> if i were to include um the other volumes as well that you know it's sort of i don't know it's about 550 pages we'd be up around the eight or nine hundred so then you're into uh, making it into two volumes, yeah. which not only is it commercially not such a good idea because inevitably one volume will sell well and the other one won't, and you'll end up with a pile of the books that nobody wants. So from a commercial point of view, it's not that great. The other reason is when I was doing a research for this, I ran across a... Uh, I don't, I don't want to name her, but a, a lady who was doing research in a similar area and she said to me that she was going to produce a, trans, a fresh translation of Bourne's Leech books 1 and 2, and I, at which point I thought, well, then there's absolutely no point in me doing that work and replicating what she's doing. I'll just concentrate on, on ball 3 and I'll, I'll throw in the Larknunga and the, and the Herbarium and maybe we'll put in the Ormond fragment as well. So, you know, that's value for money. I don't think anybody will be uh, disappointed.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, definitely not.
0: So the the Third Leech book has a lot of the more native northern European traditions. And yep. then the Old English Herbarium is more based on Eastern Mediterranean traditions. It a, it's a
2: translation into Old English of something yeah. called the Herbarium of Pseudo-Puleus. Um, Wheat in itself, it's a Latin text, but it, it's a compendium of a load of earlier Eastern Mediterranean, I guess, Greek, possibly even Syrian traditions to do with herbal healing. And normally um, connected to that book is a, a separate text called the Medicina de Quadrupedibus mm-hmm. by Sextus Plaquitos. I'm sure you know it and that uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it, it's um healing using materials drawn from animals from four-legged animals the quadrupedibus the four-legged oh. ones um which is and actually some of this stuff is pretty gross so I won't go into <laughs> details but yeah it's not stuff you want to get involved with really you know yeah. um but they're using animal animal resources and it's um that's not part of the northern european tradition as far as i can determine
0: well they do some of that in like traditional chinese medicine like uh the testicles of this animal or the horn of this animal yeah yeah
2: people do it's not something i recommend that's what i'm saying yeah Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. so we have the the bald's leech book we have old english herbarium and then then the laknunga do you think you could tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah, the Lachnunga, from the language you can say it was probably written around 1000 AD and it's, it's similar to the Herbarium in, in as much as its contents are mainly translated from Latin. The way it differs from uh, the Herbarium is that the Herbarium gives you the name of a plant and then 15 different uses for it. Whereas the Lachnunga um, gives you... A problem a headache um a broken jaw uh, uh, right. a wart on your nose and and then gives you different treatments for that condition so it's it's almost the same information put in a database and drawn out in two different ways by by treatment or by symptom mm-hmm. yeah um, so yeah it, yeah so it's a complementary thing there um it's It's not not a particularly polished work, shall we say, in terms of the way uh, it's wording and so on. But then it's not meant to be. It's it's a translation of a a Latin original. And sometimes when the guy doing the translating simply didn't know what this plant was called, uh, he's got the Latin name. He can't find an English name for it. So he just leaves a gap in the manuscript, hoping that at some point somebody's going <laughs> to work, work this out and, and come back and fill it in for it.
0: Oh, mm. oh no. But so in the Laknuga, also there, the, the Nine Herbs charm is, is in right, that yeah. collection. And that's kind of like the most famous you know, yeah. English charm. It's the, it's, most really famous and the most,
2: it's the most mysterious, isn't it? And yeah. I think that's part of the appeal of it, is that it's, it sort of, it ticks a lot of boxes that the, the nine herbs charm, and yeah, there's no real doubt that it goes back to something really quite old. Um, there's nothing even slightly Christian about it. it
0: it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it uh, names uh, Woden.
2: <laughs> it, well, yeah. So, but why does it do that? Why do they yeah. do that? How did they think that that was a um, an acceptable way to to um, to treat? stories about the old gods because they don't generally do that at all um when Bede was writing his ecclesiastical history of the english church uh, he very carefully avoids anything to do with uh, the old beliefs and the old ways of doing things um he'll only ever kind of throw in a um a footnote if something that he's heard explains the the name because the name itself is unusual or or difficult to uh, to understand, but generally speaking, no, um, they avoided that kind of thing. There are a handful of things embedded in poetry that that are um, are useful as well. But the Nine Herbs Charm is the only sort of narrative that gives you anything um, connected to uh, to, to Woden. And you know, if you sort of don't. Um, if you squint a bit and don't take too much notice of the original um, context, you've also got the um, uh, oh, there's an, the, the charm where the uh, the flying venom and the, 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 uh-huh. the those ladies riding across the uh, with it's called with fast stitches against a sudden stitch, yeah. and that's uh, that's a particularly uh, interesting um Quite difficult to translate to, um, uh, uh, medical procedure.
1: Yeah, what is what is a sudden stitch?
2: Well, that's it. Well, do you <laughs> never get a, a stitch when you're out running? You get yeah. that sudden pain. Well, that's it—a fatter yeah. stitch. Yeah. But um, what is it? Yeah, I mean that our understanding of it is maybe something to do with blood flow. Or I, I don't really know. I don't have any medical training like that. But their understanding was that the stitch was that was caused by um a flying dart having been sort of shot into the into your your side or your leg or wherever you get this sudden pain and that that's that's part of the um medieval understanding of causes of disease which is what you know part of the fascination of all this stuff um how how do people get ill what 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 is it that makes people ill? How do how do people remedy? There are really uh, three explanations for for people getting ill. One is that when you're well, you have a quality which in ancient they called how we call ah, it yes. health. It's mm, the same. Yeah. And at a certain how can be removed from you. You know, you've had a a fall and you cut yourself, and maybe how is dribbled out or something or or you've been attacked supernaturally and have been drained off then disease illness is the lack of a, a beneficial quality that you should generally have mm-hmm. uh, the other cause of disease is something from outside invading your body which is really what we're talking about with this stitch um, yeah. it's a, a small you know, it's in as There's a an arrow or a dart that's thrown and penetrates your body, and in so doing, it causes um, you know bad things to happen to you. Which, if you're if you kind of don't analyze it too hard, that's pretty much the germ theory of disease anyway. Right? Oh, it's yeah. something yeah. That gets into you. It's too small for you to see it. You can't um, you can't identify it with your senses, but you know it's there, and it has these. Uh, really unpleasant and sometimes fatal effects upon you so you call it an elf instead of a uh, virus well yeah exactly yeah but you know who's that's because of the culture in which they lived in which um you know the routine kind of violence of that kind was was just part of everyday life but it's it's only the background understanding that's different the actual uh, understanding of the disease aspect of it is is very much the same.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So and what was the third yeah. cause of
1: sickness? The third,
2: I beg your pardon, I did say there were three. The third one is that you have something within you that, that is um, not doing you any good and you need to get it out. That uh-huh. isn't something that appears in the Northern European tradition at all, but it is the thinking that lies behind the monastic ecclesiastical um insistence on bleeding venesection, opening a vein up and letting some blood out because the blood is full of the bad humor and you need to remove it but that isn't part of the northern european tradition at all it's something that was certainly practiced by monks and we know that it you know they they did a lot of this it seems to have been you can't help feeling it's when, if, if they don't really know what they're talking about, then then opening up a vein is probably a, you know, it's best one oh, God. it, it looks, feels like you're doing something, you know, yeah <laughs> <Fun> <laughs> action is better than no action. Right. But, um, pity the poor patient though, because if you, yeah you can, you end up um, with a sort of iron deficiency on, on top of all your other problems. Yep. So you do wonder.
0: Yeah. So you also have three types of healing.
2: Uh-huh. Um,
0: in the book, you talk about spell healing, knife healing, and herb healing. Yeah. So spell healing is using the word, right? And there's, you you talked earlier about the monks would use like the, the power of the word, uh, but yeah. also there's a native Northern European tradition of like Galdor and charms.
2: Yeah. Charms, yeah. So, Powerful words, words of yeah. empowerment, if you like, um, which seem to have been, the group of those, if you want to call them, magic words, although I don't like the term, but if you want these powerful words, these um, numinous words, are probably uh, uh, those recorded in ru- the runic inscriptions on bracteates, these kind of uh-huh. little gold um, disc pendants that that make a. They're around for what I don't know a century or so in these in the late fifth, sixth century. Um, They form part of the dress assemblage of um, powerful women, principally. Very rarely find them associated with men, but they form part of the in Scandinavia and in eastern England. They form part of this probably, um, should we say, a culturally significant costume, a ritual costume. Um, You could say a priestly garb if you wanted to put it in those terms, but it doesn't have to be that. Because we don't quite know what the position of women was in this uh, in this time.
0: So it's spoken uh, word, but also written word.
2: Yeah, yeah. And like, um, even like
0: and- Egil saga, you have him like doing a runic inscription under a sick girl and making her better. Well, he actually.
2: He finds the girl sick and then yeah. roots around in her bedclothes and find this, finds this piece of ivory with runes carved on it and they've been inexpertly carved and that's what's right. causing the problem. So he uh, scrapes off the runes and I think, doesn't he dip the thing in ale or something to neutralise it? Um, oh. And and then it goes back in her bed and uh, she makes a recovery. That's my Oh, it's a long time since i've read egg saga but that's my my understanding yeah and
0: he also like writes runes on his cup and smears it in blood and then it breaks because there's poison in it
2: yes so, that's right yeah so there's a, still, yeah yeah there, there's, there, there's that a power, power there there's something uh something uh, it, they contain power and they can be used to release power and that's uh mm-hmm. an important thing yeah and then knife so, healing
0: uh, is more like surgery
2: yeah, which, you know, you'd think, well, did they really do that kind of thing back then? But um, they certainly knew about suturing wounds that, that were open. Um, they did trepanation, which I find absolutely amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's not something that I'd want to undergo even now, but no. um, trepanation, for those of you who uh, are not au fait with these things, uh, it's basically when your skull has been partly, partly crushed and the um, the bones are pressing on your brain and causing you all kinds of behavioral problems and a bit of a headache too i guess um and what they were able to do was to cut away the skin and then lightly um just make a, a small uh, bore a small hole into the skull being careful not to go straight through to the brain but just keep it to the skull um, and that would relieve the pressure of the blood yeah. that's building up inside in this uh, huge sort of bruise inside the skull. And we know they were doing this even in the kind of, I don't know 6th, 7th century because you find the, the skulls of people that have been um, treated in this way, um, many of them, the bone has started its regrowth. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. suggests that the person survived for, you know, not, not, An hour or two, but weeks, months, maybe even years. So whatever it was they were doing, they were doing it carefully and in a not a surgically clean environment that we would know, but certainly with enough care and precautions not to infect the wound.
0: Mm. It
2: does suggest a level of a level of knowledge and, and practical experience that we don't always ascribe to these people.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And then the last type of healing would be herb healing.
2: Which, we, which is absolutely, haven't. absolutely um, fundamental to the Anglo-Saxon tradition. The, um, you have to kind of contextualize that. Herbs as a class of plant is uh, maybe a modern conception, but plants generally um, were at, were crucial to Anglo-Saxon life in the same way that uh, coal is what gave us the Victorian era with the, because it made all these wonderful machines and uh, but uh, the casting of iron, all this kind of stuff, possible in the Anglo-Saxon period, uh, timber was very much in that same position, and gathering resources from woodland was just something that everybody had to be able to do. It was one of those uh, basic survival skills. Some of the t- some of the uh, resource gathering would have been plants, trees, but they went on to be to form the the posts of a hall, or the um, the strakes of a ship, for example, or um, the 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 main kind of body of a, a plow or ag- agricultural ma- mm. machinery of various kinds, mills and so on, all that kind of thing. So they were very very um, comfortable with using resources drawn from the woodlands, um, but amongst that, of course, while you're gathering timber you can gather nuts and berries and these other these other sort of useful plants that have active ingredients so that are going to be able to uh, to cure you if you need them to
1: what about fungi is there any record of them using mushrooms for food or medicine
2: I certainly use them for food the word swum occurs as a, as a foodstuff uh, definitely in mm. medicine, I honestly can't say I've ever seen anything, but then I haven't read everything that's ever been written. I, uh, it's certainly perfectly possible that they would have used uh, fungi mm-hmm. for that purpose. And um, um, without kind of broadening this out too far, there is a reference, several references, to a, a something called lube, L-Y-B-B, which it's, it's a it's got to be some kind of mind expanding drug it's used it's listed amongst the kind of uh, medicinal uh, vegetable um substances but it's not it's not it's not tobacco or anything like that it's clearly something okay. r- kind of mind expanding
1: like an entheogen
2: an entheogen exactly uh-huh. yeah like, uh, some kind of uh um means of uh you know uh, exploring the uru- universe but without leaving your room hmm. it's that kind of thing it sort of opens the mind up to all kinds of other things and y- you can't help thinking that you know some of this is going to be what we now call magic mushrooms um, wow. there's no, no reason to think they didn't do this because why wouldn't they you know yeah. they, they had That's the cool. resources
1: you said it was called leave is that like hmm. libation like is that part of why
2: no the the background to it lube seems to be the, the same word as as lelf which means deer hmm. you know, and but also love, which means love hmm. so it could be um it could be a stimulant i'm not going to say more than that but, it, right. but if it's if it's connected with love um and it's a deer horn uh, maybe yeah but... well yeah who knows <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh and well, yeah
1: yeah, there's also like the reindeer drinking reindeer pee from and a reindeer that ate um, Amanitas, magic, Amanita yeah. muscaria. So, exactly. Yeah, exactly.
0: yeah. Well, then also, I mean, Frere, you know, fights with a horn and he's like the god depicted with a
2: giant phallus and so on. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there's that. Yeah. In I mean, all these started, directions here. You know. <laughs> the English name for him is Ing, and there are there's traditions about um, about Ing and his, uh, his propensities, but that's, yeah. Very little of this is, is recorded in a way that you can be absolutely sure right, what you're right, talking right. about. But, you know, the Icelandic material is really interesting and it yeah. gives you a very full and complete picture. Um, well,
0: they're, they're all interacting with... I mean, like, there are plenty of... Even in the, in the sagas, like, they're always in England and, like, interacting with, you know, all the kings and, and so on. And yeah. they come from the same... same...
2: It's the same basic idea, society... Um, what's happened is that uh, when the Angles and Saxons moved into Britain, set up their little kingdoms there they're, at that point they're still in the Iron Age just as they were in um, Scandinavia they then, we you know we get Christianity in 597 AD and very quickly um, medieval way of doing things and very quickly we get uh, literacy which we didn't right. have back on, in, in Scandinavia once you've got literacy, you know, you've got a bureaucrat- bureaucracy, you've got record keeping on a major scale. And why you have all that stuff? So that the king issue law and uh, you get taxability, that you take a little bit from a very base instead of uh, attacking other kingdoms and trying to you know, overcome them militarily and equally being attacked and overcome yourself, all that's very precarious. But if you, if you can run with um, a literate bureaucracy and a tax system, then um, you've got it made really. Spread yeah. your risk really wide. And of course the Scandinavians back home cottoned on and they like this. They like this whole um, taxation kingdom rather than chiefdom model of society. But the, what they didn't like was the social reforms that were needed, including Christianity that kind of backed it up. And it took centuries for the Christianity to catch on in Scandinavia for similar reasons. Having said that, the basic understanding of the world amongst the Scandinavians and the Anglo-Saxons at that time was very, very similar. And uh, we haven't got time to go into it all now, but. The the main objection that people have for using Scandinavian evidence to illuminate English problems is, oh, you know, Snoddy Sturluson wrote all this stuff in Iceland in the 13th century. What can it possibly have to do with um, England in the 6th century, the 7th
0: century?
2: You know, it's a a huge distance in in geography and in time. Well, the difference in geography, as you just said, You know, Icelanders, Scandinavians were backwards and forwards to England throughout this period. King Alfred himself, when he was having massive problems with the Danes and looked like his whole kingdom was going to fall apart, hosted a Norwegian traveller called Øhtere, who was a whale hunter, who came to King Alfred's court. And Alfred didn't treat him with suspicion and and disdain. He was interested in, as a whale hunter, Make a living in Norway. What? How do you go about catching whales? Which whales do you catch? What do you do with the materials once you've caught them? All oh, this case is really interesting. Just in the world at large, you wanted to know yeah. this stuff. The other point of the objection, you can say, well, the, the distance in time is too great. You know, 13th century Iceland, 13th century England, what have they got in common? If you study the material recovered from Mound One, the burial mound, the ship mound at Sutton Hoo in Uh Suffolk, which is the, you know, look on any, in any history book, you'll see Sutton Hoo in the Sutton Hoo helmet.
0: Right, beautiful. There are references there
2: to myths that later uh, appear in Iceland. These are very early references to these myths. And they're they're quite unmistakable once you know what you're looking for so you know it's a it's not just a similar culture it's essentially the same culture that's been subject to several hundred years of of um, you know, internal development and so on but they're not different in in kind or in type they just have slightly different ways of expressing themselves because one is, Literate and Christian, and the other is largely not non literate, more oral as a culture, um, and decidedly non Christian for most of its time. Yeah, so it's interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is really interesting. And I feel like we could keep asking you questions, uh, all day. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> we, ha- we have kind of gone over an hour. Uh, if you have some more time, we could ask more questions or we could just end it now. Well, I'm
2: okay for about another. 10-15 minutes it's entirely okay. up to you if you've got enough you know, yeah. you've got to edit this stuff down that's well, the hard part wh- wh- one making of the me interesting... sound like i know what i'm talking
1: about the hard part <laughs> is saying goodbye <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> but there's one uh, little thing that i found really interesting um in uh-huh. the some of the 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 early not were they jutes um one yeah. of them the, the women had these little crystal balls Right. Yeah. And yeah. they didn't use them for like scrying or anything, but you, you speculate they might have used them as a magnifying glass or to
1: make fire or
0: to make fire. But it, to, to, make me, fire. to me, it's really interesting. Like all these herbalists, like a, a really important part of any herbalists kit or any botanist's kit is um, a magnifying glass to like really look yep. at the plant in, the, you know, up yeah. close. Yeah. So, what, well, yeah. What do you, what, what are, what are those little crystal balls?
2: Well, I've looked, I have seen these things. There's several in the museum at Sittingbourne in Kent. Um, and when you, I mean, all right, we're seeing them 1,500 years after they were made, but I don't think they're optically pure enough. Okay. To actually really might be much use as a magnifying glass. Huh, okay. uh, it's the boring answer, I know, and I'm very disappointing, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I it's it. still an
0: interesting little thing you know app. yeah yeah
2: so if they're not used as magnifying glasses then what are you using them for yeah what, what possible um I, i've i have heard somebody who no authority but just somebody i know has suggested that um maybe you could use them to to dis, to uh, work out the quality of beer but if you drop huh. this, drop them into beer in because they're usually in a wire cage, aren't they? Sometimes a, quite an elaborate gold wire mm. cage. So if you drop that into beer, you might be able to tell something of the strength or purity or I don't know whatever some quality of the beer that would um, that would be useful to you because they're usually found in conjunction with a strainer as well. Oh. A, a kind of uh, yeah, which. What are you going to use a strainer for? It's going to be wine at this period, wine, mead, or beer. There's not much else that you're going to drink that needs straining. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, there's, a whole, there's a whole other podcast there. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> totally. Well, maybe we can do this again sometime, Stephen, but we should respect yeah. your time and um, wrap this up. So if folks want to learn more about your books and about you, where should they go?
2: Well, my books are all for sale. I mean, you can go to Amazon for pretty much anything these days, um, or you can go to uh, Saxonbooks.com, asbooks.com, where that's the name of the publishing house that publishes books, and they have them all for sale. Um, but, yeah, I mean, get, get them get them wherever you can get them. Get them secondhand if you have to. It doesn't matter. Um I make so little on them; it really doesn't make any difference to me. <laughs> okay. That's just a plea for sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, j- yeah, g- get hold of them, um, pick yeah. them up, exact, explore the tradition, find out what it's all about. Um, and if you come across some great uh, secrets of the uh, the Anglo-Saxon herbalists, then I'd be very interested to hear about it. Cool. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much again for being on the podcast. My pleasure. And hope you have a wonderful, wonderful evening.
2: Thank you very much. I'll do my level best. Okay.
1: Well, thanks again.
2: Okay. Take care.